So we've been walking through this story. It's the, the greatest story ever told, the story of the Bible. This week we're going to look at Moses and see it, Moses coming onto the scene, how he fits into the rest of the story. And as you remember, we've been walking through and kind of using this timeline to help where we are today. And good news, we're on the second row. We're there. We're there. We're going to add Exodus. And this is our motion for Exodus. Okay, everybody ready? We're marching out of Exodus. Come on with me. Come on, let's get out of there. Let my people go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we got, let's go from the beginning. We got God. In the beginning there was God. Then creation. Then we have the fall. Then the promise. Then, of course, the flood. Got to say it with a nasally nose. And then a tower was built. Then come the patriarchs. And then finally, we're in Exodus. Let's get out of here. All right, I like it. We're doing good. Now, um, we are going on, we're moving on to the second book of the Bible. As you may know, you probably know if you've been raised in church, Moses was actually the author of the first five books of the Bible, Genesis through Deuteronomy. Now, we already looked at the book of Genesis, and we know the book of Genesis, the word Genesis means beginnings. And we've seen the foundations of our faith. We see who God is as creator God. We've seen the, the problem of sin with, with Adam and Eve, and we've seen the result of that, but God's promise as established through the patriarchs. Now listen, we cannot make sense of the rest of the Bible if we don't understand Genesis. If we don't have a correct foundation, we can't build the rest of the house. It's like going to see The Force Awakens without seeing the rest of Star Wars, right? You're confused. And for some of us, we were still confused, even if we'd already seen the other six or seven. And we got to know the whole story, and we got to start at the beginning, and that's what we've done. Today, we're going to start into the book of Exodus. And the word Exodus, it means going out, okay? And not like, hey girl, you want an Exodus, right? You want to go get a cup of coffee with me? See, I, that's my line. That's probably why I'm still single. It's a book about how God delivers how he leads his people out of Egypt by his power and therefore for his glory. And we're going to look at this morning and you remember that, that all of the things that happen are predicated on the person of God and the promises of God. So what promises has God made Israel in particular? Well, we go all the way back to Abraham, the first of the, the patriarchs. He said to Abraham back in Genesis 15, you can be sure why? Because I'm God and I keep my promises that your descendants will be strangers in a foreign land where they will be oppressed as slaves for 400 years. So he promises Abraham, this isn't a good promise, he said you're going to be oppressed by a people which we now know is going to be Egypt for 400 years and that's what's coming for them. But he also promises I will punish the nation that enslaves them and in the end they will come away with great wealth. So there's a promise of suffering but there's also a promise of deliverance. Well, deliverance unto what? Well, the end of Joseph's life, he says to his brothers, he, he echoes God's promise here, soon I will die, Joseph tells his brothers, the very end, last chapter of Genesis, but God will surely come to help you and lead you out of this land of Egypt. He will bring you back to the land he solemnly promised to give to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob. So he says, you're going to not just be delivered from Egypt, but I'm going to take you back to that land that Abraham had lived in, the land that I've promised you from day one. And because God is a good, good father, because he keeps his promises, he says, you can be sure this is going to happen. It's going to be rough for a while, but at the end of it all, you're going to find deliverance. And so we're going to see today, we're going to see the person of Moses, and we're going to see him as a representative of God's deliverance, and then we're going to call him the deliverer. First, we see the need for a deliverer. If you remember, at the end of our story last week, we said there was this great famine that hits the entire Middle East, and, and Jacob's family is forced to move to the land of Egypt to get food. Now, we saw that God had positioned Joseph 
for such a time as this, right? That he was sold by his brothers into slavery, that he was imprisoned after being in, by, by being falsely accused by Potiphar's wife, and then after all of that time, God just happens to have a cupbearer in prison who gets his dreams interpreted by Joseph, and then is standing before Pharaoh and goes, I know an interpreter brings God, Joseph, to that position so that he's ready. He says, God put me in this position. Why? So I could save the lives of many people. And he did. He saved the entire land of Egypt from, from dying from a famine. And he saves his own family and preserves the line of the deliverer. Now, when they come to Egypt, verse 5 of Exodus 1, it says there's 70 people in it in Jacob's posse. So his, his sons and daughters, somebody asked me last week after church, did he have daughters? 12 sons and he daughters? He did. He had a lot of daughters. They didn't mention them. Um, him and his daughters and his family, they come down, 70 of them move to Egypt, but then by a few verses later, it says they start to multiply rapidly, 600,000 men, and we kind of do the math, um, with the women and children included, there was probably two and a half to three and a half million people, Israelite people, living in the land of Egypt at this time. Here's God making his promise. They are a great nation. There are a huge amount of people there. And Pharaoh, he's not happy with this rapid multiplication of the uh, Israelites, of the Jewish people, and he's afraid that they're going to overrun the Egyptians and take control of the Egyptians. And so he's going to take some steps to control them. And I was going to have this joke about how we're not the only one with immigration issues right now, um, but I thought, no, that'd be too soon, so I'm not going to tell that joke. (laughs) Good thing I avoided that. Um, (laughs) So the first step that he takes is he's going to enslave the adults, verse 11 of chapter 1. So the Egyptians made the Israelites their slaves. They appointed brutal slave drivers over them, hoping to wear them down with crushing labor. They forced them to build the cities of Pithom and Ramses as supply centers for the king. So his first step is, if we can oppress them, if we can make them our slaves, then we'll keep them in their place. But that doesn't work, because God is more powerful than Pharaoh. And as he treats them more harshly, they actually start to multiply even greater. And there's more of them than there ever have been before. So he takes a more extreme step and he starts to eliminate them, starting with the male babies. Verse 15, then Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, gave this order to the Hebrew midwives, two in particular that I can't pronounce. When you help the Hebrew women as they give birth, watch as they deliver. If the baby is a boy, kill him. If it's a girl, let her live. So Pharaoh's plan, he said, we're just going to wipe out the next generation of men all there will be left is women. And then who are they going to have to marry? They're going to have to marry Egyptian men. And before you know it, they have wiped out their entire race. Now listen, we need to sit on this for a second. You know what this is? This is, this is genocide. And we need to feel the gravity of this. The weight of what, the oppression that they are forcing on. This is a post-Genesis 3 sinful fallen world where there's real evil taking place all the time. And we see this in the Egypt. And it should horrify us. But, but then we, we know that even in the midst of this genocide, that we have God faithfully preserving his promise. He said back in Genesis 3, the seed of the woman is going to crush the seed of the head of the serpent. Right? There's a deliverer coming. And then he got more specific with Abraham. He said it's going to be from your line. A, 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 somebody from your nation that's going to bless all nations. And then he even got more specific, and he says it's going to be from the tribe of Judah. And he is going to be here, even in the midst of this oppression, preserving the line of the deliverer. Jesus is coming. And God uses to preserve this line an unlikely source. Look at verse 17. But because the midwives feared God, they refused to obey the king's orders. So here you have these two, two Hebrew midwives practicing what we call civil disobedience. There's times 
When the, the law of the king contradicts the law of the king of kings, and you've got to make a choice. The disciples did this in, in Acts chapter 5. They said, we're going to obey God instead of man. You've told us we can't preach, but God has told us to go and make disciples of all nations. He is the one that we listen to and give accountability to. And so these women, they're not afraid of Pharaoh and his henchmen. You think about it, that's an audacious move. But they fear the one that created Pharaoh and his henchmen. And say, we're going to obey God. And so they refuse to, to kill the babies. And they, they say, oh, these Hebrew women, they just keep popping them out so fast we can't get there. That's their excuse. Um, and then in verse 22, Pharaoh says, all right, we're going to up the ante. Pharaoh gave this order to all, the, all of his people, the entire Egyptian race. He goes, throw every newborn Hebrew boy into the Nile River, but you may let the girls live. Now listen again. We need to be horrified at this. They are chucking baby boys into the Nile River. I mean, can you imagine what that would have been like, what that scene would have been like, this martial law? It's insane. We have to, we have to hate sin the way that God hates sin, but that includes the sin in our own rebellious hearts. So we see here clearly a deliverer is needed. The situation is bleak, but God is faithful, and so this deliverer is born. Uh, even in the midst of this horrific infantile genocide, God doesn't change his plans, and there's just one baby that, in particular that's spared. And it's because of the faith of his parents. I love, again, we have Hebrews 11 to give us some foresight into this, uh, some hindsight, I should say. It was by faith, Hebrews 11, 23, that Moses' parents hid him for three months when he was born. They saw that God had given him an unusual child, and I think that's a positive unusual, and they were not afraid to disobey the king's command. This echoes what they say in the first verse of, Gen of Exodus 2. She saw, that's, that's his mother they're speaking about, she saw that she had a special baby. Now listen, moms, I know that all of you think your babies are special, okay? I get that, I understand that, um, but, but I, think, I don't think this is just parental bias here. I think, you know, my baby's better than any other baby. It's smarter and stronger and better looking. Okay, that's great. God bless your child. But what she's saying here is this is some godly insight. Moses is saying, listen, or God is saying, listen, you're, you're a child. There's something unique about him, something special, something unusual that I'm going to do with this baby. And so by faith, even though they can't see God's plan, they don't know God's plan, by faith they protect this child. And of course we know the story. How do they protect it? They protect it by putting the baby in a basket and hiding it in the Nile River. Who finds the baby in the river? Pharaoh's daughter. Now, this baby had two older siblings, Miriam and, and, and Aaron. And Miriam pops out of the weeds and goes, hey, you need a wet nurse? Right? Do you need someone to help raise this baby? And, and Pharaoh's daughter's looking at her like, yeah, that would be great. So let me go get somebody. She gets Moses' the baby's own mother to come and raise the child in Pharaoh's court. It's this incredible way that God puts all of these things together. And, and then the, the Pharaoh's daughter, she names him Moses. In the Egyptian language, it meant uh, son or, or born. Uh, but it sounded like, it was kind of a homophone to uh, the Hebrew word, which means to draw out, which means to take them out of the water, because, of course, that's where she found Moses. And I love what Warren Wearsby said here. He said, a baby's tears, Pharaoh's daughter hearing Moses crying in, in the river, a baby's tears were his first weapons of his war against Egypt. And does that not echo another baby's tears comes onto the scene several thousand years later to deliver all of us? God uses the weak to shame the strong. And God uses a baby's crying. He uses a handful of women, the Hebrew midwives, Moses' mother and sister and Pharaoh's daughter, to start a revolution. It's unbelievable. 
And so then this baby who's born is now need to be prepared, need to get him ready to be able to do the task that God's going to call him to do. And so ironically, it's Pharaoh's own grandson, catch the irony here, it's his own adopted grandson that will lead the very people that he's trying to exterminate, lead them out of Egypt. And what it says here, uh, Stephen, when he in Acts gives his great speech, he talks about Moses, and he says he was actually trained in the Egyptian palace for over 40 years. And he says in verse 22, Moses was taught all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was powerful in both speech and action. See, Egypt had perhaps the, the greatest educational system in the world at that time. And so you love God's sense of humor here, that he's breeding the Exodus leader right underneath the noses of Pharaoh and all of his family. And, and he's being trained to speak and think like an Egyptian, so he will know how better to approach them and to lead God's people out of Egypt. God had a plan. Well, God prepared Moses with this world-class education, but he also prepares him through his own failures. Look at this. Moses, see, he knew, he knew that he was an Israelite. He knew he wasn't Egyptian. He knew he was adopted, and he couldn't help but sympathize with the plight of his people. In verse 11, it says, many years later, when Moses had grown up, he went out to visit his own people, the Hebrews, and he saw how hard they were forced to work. During his visit, he saw an Egyptian beating one of his fellow Hebrews. Now, the Hebrew word here, it meant beating to death. Not just like he's pushing him around. He is beating him to the point where he is going to die if Moses doesn't intervene. So, so Moses has a, a choice to make here. And what we see in Moses' choice is we do see compassion in his heart for his fellow Hebrew. And we do see courage. He's about to draw this line in the sand. And Hebrews 11 once again helps us understand what this line is. Hebrews 11:24. It was by faith that Moses, when he grew up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose to share the oppression of God's people instead of enjoying the fleeting pleasures of sin. That's been a theme throughout our story. And he thought it was better to suffer for the sake of Christ than to, than to own the treasures of Egypt. For he was looking ahead to his great reward. Moses has a choice here. I can just shut my mouth and walk back into the palace and pretend like nothing ever happened. Or I can choose to side with my people who are being oppressed. What would you choose? But here's the problem. Moses takes matters into his own hands and launches the dumbest attempt at freeing people in the history of the world. Okay, look at what he does. After looking in all directions to make sure no one was watching, Moses killed the Egyptian and hid the body in the sand. Really? That's your plan? You're going to start picking them off one by one? Right? Like, you're just going to walk around town like Wyatt Earp and just start mowing people down? And you know how we know it was dumb and wrong? It says he looked around in all directions to make sure no one was looking. You know when you don't look around? When you're going to do something smart and right. You only look around when you're about to do something that's dumb and it's wrong. And so Moses, he's in for this rude awakening because look at the fallout that comes from this. The next day when Moses went out to, his vis to visit his people again, he saw two Hebrew men fighting. Why are you beating up your friend, Moses said to the one who had started the fight. The man replied, who pointed you to be our prince and judge? Are you going to kill me as you killed that Egyptian yesterday? So here comes Moses looking to break up a Jew-on-Jew -Jew fight. They turn at him and go, well, that's the pot calling the kettle black, isn't it? They know exactly what he had done, and he realizes that his murder has gotten out there, and everybody knows about it. And we see Pharaoh starts to come after him, and so he flees into the desert of Midian. Now, Moses had attempted to deliver the people his way, taking matters literally into his own hands, trying to kill them, take them out one by one, but that's not going to work. 
So God takes Moses out into the desert for some humility boot camp. And we see often in scripture, the desert is the place where God takes people to meet with them and do business with them. And so after, it, God, God wants to show him, listen, this deliverance is going to come from my hands, not from yours. So even though he's already been through 40 years of training in the Egyptian palace, he now goes through 40 more years of training in the Midian desert. Moses is 80 years old before God uses him for the purpose that he had prepared him for. God is in no rush. He knows exactly what Moses needs to become and how long it will take him to get there. Listen, Abraham, remember he had to wait 25 years for Isaac to be born. Isaac had to wait 20 years for Jacob to be born. Joseph was in prison for 13 years being prepared for the position God had for him. And this may seem like a dry season in your life. It may seem like there's no growth. Or maybe you're going through suffering and you don't see the light at the end of the tunnel and you don't see any action. You don't see what, what is God doing in this season of my life? God is purposely preparing you for the good works that he's laid out for you. When God wants to make a squash, he takes six months, okay? When he wants to make an oak tree, it takes over a hundred years. You want to be an oak tree or you want to be squash? God is always faithful to his promises, but it's his timing and in his way. Wait upon the Lord. So then we, then we, we, we zoom back to the people, in Israel, or the people of Israel still being oppressed in Egypt. It says years passed, and the king of Egypt died. Okay, it's been 40 years. But the Israelites continued to groan under their burden of slavery. They cried out for help, and their cry rose up to God. When the people of Israel understand the bondage that they're in, when they understand that there's this Egyptian slave master that they cannot be freed from, when there's no way out, they cry to their God. And when you and I understand, and I'm not just talking to Christians or to un I'm unbelievers here, when we understand that we can't defeat sin on our own, when we come to the place that realize we're in bondage and that, that sin and Satan and death are our master, only when we come to that point of realization are we going to turn and cry out to our Savior. And in this moment, and I love what Exodus says, God's response here God heard their groaning. And he remembered his covenant promise to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. He looked down on the people of Israel and knew it was time to act. We have to understand God knows what we're going through. He knows. He's aware. He knows where you're at in your life right now. You're not alone. And God hears. It's not just, God hears when we cry out to him. When we cry out in pain and, and in suffering and in confusion and in frustration, he hears that. And finally, God intervenes. He knew it was time to act. God made a way out for the people of Israel, and he has provided a way out for you and I through Jesus. So now we're going to see the deliverer being called. God is faithful to his promise. Do you remember what he told um, in Genesis 12? One of the promises to Abraham, he said, I'll bless those who bless you, and I'm going to curse those who curse you. Well, Egypt is cursing Israel. So watch out, Egypt, because you're about to be cursed. The deliverer's called. Moses gets married. He has a kid. And then there's this insane scene where he, he encounters a bush, a bush that's on fire, but it never burns up. We know, of course, the story, the burning bush. And this is what we call a theophany, which is an appearance. Anytime when God appears to man in an image like this, 
it's, a, it's what we, the big fancy word is a theophany. And we know it's a theophany because it says God calls out to him from the bush. Just spells it out there for us. And this is the first time we ever see the word holy in the Bible. Went all the way through Genesis. And in verse 5 of Genesis, or excuse me, Exodus chapter 3, it says, Do not come any closer, the Lord warned. Take off your sandals, for you are standing on holy ground. And when Moses hears God talking to him out of a bush, it says when Moses heard this, he covered his face because he was afraid to look at God. In this moment, when he understands that he is in the presence of God, he takes off his shoes because the very ground that he's standing on is holy because he's in the presence of God. He can't even look at God. He covers his face. Do we have that sense of awe? Maybe we're not looking at God in a burning bush, but do we understand that today we are living in the presence of God? And Moses sees that, and that's his reaction. Then God speaks, and when God speaks, we would do best to listen. The Lord told him, I have certainly seen the oppression of my people in Egypt. I have heard the cries of their distress because of their harsh slave drivers. Yes, I am aware of their suffering. Isn't that, again, God knows and he hears. So I've come down to rescue them from the power of the Egyptians and lead them out of Egypt in their own fertile and spacious land. It is a land of flowing with milk and honey, the land where the Canaanites and then the Jebusites and the Itesites and the Parasites, you know, they go on. I skipped that part for you. It's where they all live. Okay, that's where I'm taking you. Look, the cry of the people of Israel has reached me. And I've seen how harshly the Egyptians abused them. I care about them. Now go, for I am sending you to Pharaoh. You must lead my people, Israel, out of Egypt. Now let's chat for a second. How would you respond to that? God says those words to you. I, I'd like to imagine, I'd be like, 10-4, God, I got this. If you're in this, I'm in this. Let's do this. Yeah! Like, you know, I just get pumped up. Like, God is taking me. We're going to start kicking some Egyptian uh, enemies, and, and we're going to lead. <laughs> Woo! Uh, that was an elder meeting waiting to happen. I, I, I'm going to lead my people out of Egypt, but I know myself too well. I know that that's probably not the bravery that I'd meet, and I would probably be a lot more like Moses, who immediately shifts into excuse mode. Look at what he says. Moses has two questions for God. First one is, who am I? Who am I? But Moses protested to God. That's never smart. Who am I to appear before Pharaoh? Who am I to lead the people of Israel out of Egypt? The first thing he does is look at himself. And what I love is God's response. This is amazing. God answered, I will be with you. Do you see that? He doesn't answer, oh Moses, actually you were this little cute little baby and you were born in a basket and then Pharaoh's daughter actually found you. Now they're going to sing a song about you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, he said, I don't care who you are. I could use an eggplant, you numbskull. Like, all that matters is that I am going with you. When you come into Egypt, they're not going to be freaked out because they see Moses. It's because they're going to see me on your shoulder. It doesn't matter who you are. I am God, and I'm coming with you. Now, at that point, you think, all right, all right, let's do this. No, more questions. Who are you? Moses protested again, fool. If I go to the people of Israel and tell them the God of your ancestors has sent me to you, they will ask, what is his name? What should I tell them? He goes, who, who am I going to tell them send me? Who, who are you? Give me your name. I need to see some ID. I need to see some proof here that you are who you are. And again, God's answers, which are always shorter than Moses's and always wiser than Moses's, he goes, I am who I am. Now, this is unbelievable. 
God does not give him his name. He goes, before you worry about my name, the word I am, it means to exist or to be. And what he says to Moses is, don't worry about my name. Don't worry about any of that. Be stunned by this, that I exist, that I am. A better translation would be, I be who I be, right? Because I am. That's all you need to know. That's where you need to start. Are we stunned by the fact that God exists? That the fact that there is this holy, sovereign, infinite, just, good God should shake us to our core and change the way we live every single day. He says, I exist. And then finally in verse 15, when he says, I am, I exist and I'm sending you. He goes, this, say this to the people of Israel, Yahweh, or your version might say Lord in all caps, or Jehovah, the God of your ancestors, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. So he gives him his name. And this is the personal name of God. It's, it's Yahweh. In Hebrew, they wouldn't even, because it was so holy, they didn't even speak it. They just put the letters. Now it's been anglicized, uh, meaning the English spin on it, the Latin spin on it became Jehovah. And a lot of times the all caps Lord, when you see all caps Lord in your Bible, that's Yahweh. That's his personal name. And it's built out of the word I am is the Hebrew Hayah. And, and so he's just, uh, he's just taking the, the, the name Hayah and, and making it into, into Yahweh his personal name, like I am the pastor, or as many of you call me the good reverend, stop it. Uh, <laughs> my personal name is Justin, and he, and he says, listen, this is my name. He gets, there's this intimate moment with, with Moses and God. He says, this is my name. He says, you know my name, my personal name? It's that same, the one who is today, the one who exists today, was the same God, the same personal God to, to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob. I always have been this God. I am this God and I always will be this God. That's who's sending you. And then he goes on and prophesies exactly all of the events that are going to happen. Because Pharaoh's going to harden his heart and we're going to have to kill all their firstborns. And God is outside of time. He sees beginning to end. He has always existed. And you would think at this point, it would sink in with Abraham, that he, or excuse me, Moses, that he'd be good. But, but Moses has the audacity, and we often have the audacity. He's standing in the presence of God. God has just given you that answer, speaking from a burning bush. And he goes, but, but, he has two buts, two objections. First one, they won't listen. They won't listen. He goes, I'm going to come to them, and, and they won't hear me. So God goes, all right, let me give you some signs. Throw your staff down on the ground. It becomes a snake. Pick it up by its tail. Uh-huh. All right, picks it up and it becomes a staff again. Put your hand in your cloak, pulls it out, it's leprous. Put it back in, pull it back out, it's healed. And then you know that Nile River that, that they get all of their sustenance, all of their life from? I'm going to give you the ability to turn that thing to blood. When you do these signs in front of them, they will know that I am sent you and they will listen. So he goes, okay, well maybe they can hear, but here's the other problem, God. And once again, he protests. I can't speak. I can't speak. Moses pleaded with the Lord, Oh Lord, I'm not very good with words. I never have been, and I'm not now. Even though you have spoken to me, I get tongue-tied, and my words get tangled. And this is the ironic part of this statement. He calls him Lord, which here is the other, another word for God. It means it's Adonai, which means sovereign master. So he goes, God, who, who owns everything, who can do anything, who's created anything, who's speaking to me from this bush, giving me all these crazy signs, this won't work because I have stage fright. I stutter. I, I get my tongue tied up. God, how can you overcome that? 
And then God is just like, this is killing me. I knew I should have picked someone else. He goes, the Lord asked Moses, who, and I love this, this is like Job, who makes a person's mouth? Who decides whether people speak or do not speak? Who, who hear or do not hear, see or do not see? Isn't it not I, the Lord? I will be with you as you speak, and I will instruct you what to say. He goes, listen, I created your mouth. You don't think that I can put words in it? And, and he comes to Moses, and, and, and it's ironic because, and I keep using that word today, but I think it works every time. He, Moses is eloquently laying this out for us as the author of this book, right? And this is a big, I told you, from God. But, but 40 years of, of the best training in Egypt, 40 years of desert training, and Moses is still a knucklehead. He still won't listen to God. And God is showing us, look, I use the weak things, the foolish things, to show how great I am. And I will get the glory in this, because surely Moses is not getting any credit for this business. Listen, did you know I have natural stage fright? I, I know it doesn't seem like it, uh, but in preschool, there's video of this, video documented evidence that when we were having a preschool performance, and there was like eight of us, it was a small Christian school in Pennsylvania, and we had this, there was like, you know, ten parents in the audience, they had, our audience had to be there because they were our rides. And so we get there, and the entire performance, I am like this. Jesus loves me, this I know. I wouldn't look. And, and I, I mean, over time, God has, by his grace, put me where I am and, and does through me what he does through me. But it's not because of who I am. And it's not because of my abilities. I can and I should put a lot of work and effort and sweat and tears into a sermon week after week. But if, if, if these words, if this is going to be something that saves people, that changes lives, this is not about me. Romans 1, he says, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus for it. It is the power of God unto salvation. It's what God has said about what Jesus did that changes lives, not me and my abilities. That's why Paul said in 2 Corinthians, I, I come among you not with eloquence and wisdom. I refuse to know nothing but Jesus and him crucified. It's Jesus that is the power unto salvation, and he uses weak vessels to show that. We are not anyone's savior. We are pointing them to the Savior. We are quenched souls showing other people where the well is. We are freed people showing them where the key is. It's all about the person of Jesus. And even after all of that, Moses pleads. He goes, send someone else. And God is very angry at him. But he goes, fine, I'll send Aaron with you. And Aaron will be your microphone. Aaron will be your rep. And then I love this. In, in verse 19, before Moses left, the Lord said to him, return to Egypt for all those who wanted to kill you have died. He goes, yeah, you know all those people that you're terrified of? Yeah, they're dead. <laughs> you should have seen the look on your face, man. You were freaked out. I think, and I wonder if God, if God isn't seeing if Moses would step out in faith before telling him that many of his obstacles are gone. Now, of course, there are still many obstacles that remain. And, 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 and there's, then there's this bizarre scene, and I, excuse me, it's, it's a little graphic. But on the way to Egypt, at a place where Moses and his family had stopped for the night, the Lord confronted him and was about to kill him. You know, what? After all of that, after everything we went through with the bush, and now you're just going to take him out? But look at what happens. 
Moses' wife, Zipporah, took a flint knife and circumcised her son. She touched his feet with the foreskin and said, Now you are a bridegroom of blood to me. I told you it's graphic. When she said a bridegroom of blood, she was referring to the circumcision. After that, the Lord left him alone. Now, there's a lot that we don't know what's going on here. But there's some things that I think we can put together. God is going to kill Moses. We know that. His wife's response is to circumcise their son. After the circumcision, God leaves them alone. So there's a cause and effect relationship. The circumcision prevents the killing. Now, if you remember, the circumcision was the covenant sign between God and Israel. He says, if you're not circumcised, you will be cut off of the covenant blessings. So, so here is Moses. He says, you're about to go and, and release the covenant people, and your own son has not been circumcised? Your own son is not a part of the covenant? And this shows how serious God takes these things. God doesn't play games. He's not messing around. He says, if Moses, if you're going to be used by me, you must come to me by faith. And how do we know that he has faith? Well, faith evidences itself in obedience. If Moses is not obeying, then he's not, he's not placing his faith in, in Jesus, in, in God. Listen, he says, if you believe that I am who I am, you better put your money where your mouth is. And you better circumcise your son. Does our faith evidence itself in obedience? And then we'll land the plane here. Moses and Aaron returned to Egypt and called all the elders of Israel together. Aaron told them everything the Lord had told Moses, and Moses performed the miraculous signs as they watched that he had given so they would listen. Then the people of Israel were convinced that the Lord had sent Moses and Aaron. When they heard that the Lord was concerned about them and had seen their misery, they bowed down and worshipped. So here's what I want to land on. The people of Israel believed, and because they believed, they would be saved. They saw themselves in, in chains and in bondage. And they knew the only way out was for someone else to deliver them. And they see God has sent a deliverer to them. You've sent us someone after hundreds of years to free us. And what is their response? They bow down to the ground and worship him. Warren Wearsby said, worship is the logical response of God's people to God's grace and goodness. And when you and I, when we understand the bad news that we are in bondage to sin, and that even as believers, we can't experience victory over sin by trying harder, by pulling ourselves by our bootstraps. There's nothing that you and I can do to be saved or to grow as believers. And when we come to that point, we realize and we see that God has sent a deliverer, someone to come and die for us and to give us his righteousness and to be our power over sin. And when we understand that, when we understand who Jesus is and he's come to deliver us, the only response is to worship him. And that's what we're going to do here. We're going to pray and then we're going to get together and we're going to worship God. We're going to fall down on the ground and we're going to praise God for his deliverance of his people as he had promised since day one in the garden. Let's pray. Father God, we prayed at the, end of the, at the beginning of the service, we sang the song that you would open our eyes, open the eyes of our heart that we may see you, that we may see you for the glorious God that you are, the promise-keeping God that you are, the holy God that you are. And on our own, we are blind. We have no ability to see. But God, you've come to, to set the captive free and to give sight to the blind. So we come before you today and just ask you to open our eyes so that we would see Jesus. And we don't need to come beg for you to do things. You've already given us all that we need in Jesus. Father, I, believe, I pray that the people in this room today, that, that my, I myself that we would understand our inability to defeat sin, to overcome meaninglessness on our own. 
that we can only find our purpose, we can only find power over sin, we can only find peace in Jesus. And I pray that you'd open the eyes of our hearts to see that and that we may cry out to our Savior and the God who knows, the God who hears, and the God who has intervened, that we would, that we would embrace Jesus, lean all of our weight on Jesus and praise him as our Savior. It's in his beautiful name that we live and that we pray. Amen.